a fog has been cast over the questions asked by Jesus, um, that the enemy of our souls has uh, created this veil over them and something really fierce actually from, I call it the gut of the spirit, invited me to join in the work of dispelling this fog and bringing his beautiful questions back into the light for both the bride and the world that is watching. Friends, this is Morgan Snyder, and I'm with a treasured friend, Kara Murphy, who is the author of Inquisitive Christ, and even more, she is a woman of the questions. And if you tuned into the last episode, you'll know that we're walking through some treasure trails illuminated in her book and in her life. Kara, I'm really, really glad to be able to come back to the studio again and uh, revisit a conversation on this with you. Oh, me too. Thank you so much. I've never been called a woman of the questions before, and that just, that makes my heart so glad. That's part of God's name for you, Kara. Oh, That's part of his name. I received that. So speaking of questions, this book is all about the questions. And it's not just any questions. It's questions that God, the heart of the universe, asks us in a very personal way that you have mined from the sacred text. I'm curious, as I said in our earlier podcast, I pursued you to have this podcast because I was so moved by this writing. I couldn't put it down because I too love the questions. And I'm curious for you, what was it about the questions that led you to write a book about them? It was in making the discovery that questions don't mean something has gone wrong or that I have failed in some way. I didn't know that. I, I didn't actually realize how much validation was taking place in the asking. So God taught me that his questions are the evidence that there is a God that loves me passionately, that deep-hearted conversations with him are what he craves, and that he will not relent until I am whole and wholly his. This was a massive paradigm shift for me. In times when I could not hear God speak or times when I was seeking only answers, his questions became the constant. They were always present, always available, and they would lead me down the narrow road that goes to the center of his heart. But this road does not always lay arrow straight. And I had to learn this. The questions are the bends and the curves that we may not be able to see beyond, but we can know that he is walking the path with us. As I lived this, breathed this in, practiced this with my family, myself, I was prompted that maybe others too may want to practice the same and thus uh, the book. Um, and, and two more again, I also sensed that a fog has been cast over the questions asked by Jesus. Um, mm that the enemy of our souls has 
created this veil over them and something really fierce actually from, I call it the gut of the spirit Mm. invited me to join in the work of dispelling this fog and bringing his beautiful questions back into the light for both the bride and the world that is watching. Naming the fog is so interesting because as you're sharing that, what strikes me is one of the ways in which the fog comes, in my experience, is that we have the answer, right? We live in a culture of answers, especially in a culture that's so um, saturated in information that because we have the answer, we actually miss the blessing of the question. I remember early in my apprenticeship, I learned to start asking questions to elders. And what I find, what I found, Kara, was I began to ask questions even when I thought I knew the answer. That was the shift. I remember going to a friend about finances, and I knew that. I was an economics major. I knew the answer on paper, but what I began to learn was it was in the question that something deeper was accessed, and then he would often respond with questions back to me. And so I so appreciate you naming that there is a fog that's actually caused us to not see the questions clearly. And in your book really is an invitation to stop and revisit the questions as though we're coming to them for the first time. Yes, well, and Jesus also knew the answers when he asked his questions. And that does not diminish the fact that the questions were asked. You're right, I mean, there is something deep that happens in the process of question and sitting with question and leaving space for that. That's so good. Kira, I wanna turn to uh, not a question, but an answer, uh, or maybe rather said a statement in your book that this just, it just resonated. And I know this is page 60 in Inquisitive Christ. And and I think so many of us listeners, if we're honest, you know, as Dallas says, actions reveal beliefs 100% of the time. Um, you, you concisely name where we often find ourselves. These are your words. Somewhere, somehow, I have come to a quiet decision in my soul that I must make life work for myself. If good things are created for me, then it's because I will create them. If bad things are to be prevented, then it's because I will prevent them. I will push forward in my career, building bigger and better barns for myself. I will give my children a thoroughly enriching childhood. I will keep the romance alive in my marriage. I will make it all happen because it is all up to me. That statement just stops me, Kara, because you're tapping into something universal that we struggle with. And also, I believe that there's a universal hope in that. I think that what I was reminded of when I was reading that for the third time is that the questions seem to serve as as a guide to recover the story and the truth about God being at the epicenter, that so much of the current is to pull us into that reality, right? We find ourselves, whatever the story is, big or small, good or bad, it's up to us to make it happen. It's us up to us to sustain it. But I find that the questions, even before I have the answers, somehow realign and I find God at its center. React to that paragraph and where your heart is with that. Mm, That's good. Actually, as you were reading that, I was just thinking to myself, boy, 
that should be the uh, the creed of the orphan <laughs> that mm. you just read. I mean, that's, right. that's it. Exactly. Yeah, this making life work for myself. This agreement typically comes for me in seasons of painful waiting on God and with God. In fact, you read from chapter three, the question, why are you sleeping? Um, and the whole context of that in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Morgan, we had talked a little bit about um, how waiting is experienced differently by the genders. And that was something that I have been pondering quite a bit. And um, the first thing that came to my mind was waiting is avoided at all costs by both genders, both male and female. Um, But particularly, and I can speak to the feminine heart, the feminine heart longs to be pursued waiting for something that we deem good or necessary actually feels like a withholding of intimacy. And thus there is a perceived abandonment in that. In waiting, I experience God as a passive suitor. But as I write in chapter two, you know, questions always lead us somewhere. Either they lead to mistrust and doubt or they lead us to the source of truth. He uses questions as instruments for our healing and for his glory. We all have to enter back into that space of waiting. It is a holy space, the space, the pause between his questions and answers. The waiting has something even better for us in store. Waiting with God is pregnant with more of God. I really appreciate you naming the space between questions and answers. Like it's just violent to a soul that's practiced in immediate gratification. Anything you need to learn how to do, you can find a video on YouTube. So we think, right? But what you're saying is the questions actually require a a sort of space and they almost retrain us in, in a soul's rhythm, a soul's portion, a soul's pace. And so it's fascinating to hear that we can come with this orphan's creed of life is up to me. And then even in the questions, like you, you said earlier, beautifully, like even the questions have their own validation and they have a way of recovering pace and recovering the pause. And then I, I, I'm curious if you find this, that the questions actually lead to a deeper question We start with the thing we think we need or want, but it's actually just the beginning of following this treasure trail to get to the thing that God is really after. And frankly, the thing that we're really after. Right. And the thing that we're scared of, but we are really Mm. after. Exactly. Exactly. And like you said, you know, God is at the epicenter of all of this. And, and here we are in that space of waiting, maybe assuming that we we've been abandoned, But really, there has been no abandonment. He is there. He is showing up in His glory. It just, the experience is different than when we are seeking answers. It's It's a different paradigm. We are students of the questions. And as apprentices, we have questions that are current. And actually, in preparing for this podcast, it caused me to freshly ask God, what is the question he's asking me? So I'm curious for you, what comes up just in this moment of your story 
what is a question by way of example, either you are asking of God or a question that you sense and intuit that he's asking of you just by way of example, by way of modeling. I think I spoke a little bit to this last time, Morgan, um, that question of what do you want me to do for you? Um, and, and actually, depending on the day, the different words get emphasized. So I think last time we talked, it was what, what is it? What do you desire? Tell me, share with me. I want to know. But right now it is, what do you want me to do for you? Because Kara, you might think you are capable. You might think you're competent. Um, you might think that you, be, you would be able to make that life for yourself, but I want to know what you are asking me to do for you. That, that just feels like the opposite of having the answers of this is what my theology is. Like, right? Like you said, the goal is intimacy. The goal is always intimacy. And so you, you are exposing, as you share that even in me, places that I actually am hesitant to move into intimacy with God. I think just to just to return the vulnerability. Um, so I was praying in this, and and one of the questions God was asking me, Kara, He said, um, "Do you want to get well?" And I just get even choked up as I as I say it because when the heart of God asks you if you want to get well, He's naming um, an assumption that there are things that aren't well and he's aware of it and he really cares. And that's as far as I've gotten with God on that. That was this morning, but he was, do you want to get well? And I'm just aware you caused me to risk going to him and asking him what his question was for me. And I was surprised by that question. And I feel like I'm on the eve. Uh, it's like the sky is darkest before dawn. I feel like dawn is right around the corner and there are things that are not well that he wants to tend to, some of which I'm not even aware of. But as my heart surfaces, I go, okay, I guess we're going to go there. If that's where God wants to go, that's the only place I can go for life. So thank you. I bless you with that, Morgan. Whatever he exposes in in you that needs that healing from him, that wellness. It takes courage to enter that process. It's very painful, but it's it's good. Your writing, Kara, really renewed my uh, passion with seeing God as the God of the questions. I spend a lot of my energy thinking of my questions and the questions I'm asking God, the questions I'm seeking uh, in mentorship and in apprenticeship but you've really returned me back to what are the questions he's asking. And I'm curious for you, let's talk about those questions in your experience uh, for our fellow like-hearted apprentices out there. Are they more universal? Or are they more unique? Are they ancient or are they new? Like, how do we recover the questions that he's raising that somehow have been lost to us? Mm, that's so good. That's good. Um, Oh, right away, I'm going to say they're both and. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both ancient and new. They're, they're both universal and unique. They are both for the world who does not know him and the church that has gotten a taste of him but needs more. They're ancient 
before the world began and they are new each morning like his mercy. I like to think of them as a kind of a kind paradox um, that they are the questions themselves are the friends of Jesus. And he uses these friends in the recovery of our hearts. For me, the pursuit and practice of spiritual disciplines, uh, silence and solitude, namely among others, but um, I like to also call them the Celtic rhythms because I'm Irish and and that Mm. just feels good. Basically, it is spending time quietly with the inquisitive Christ. Um, Some of the best times of, of question and conversation with him are on runs for me. Mm-hmm. Um, moving my body somehow puts all of the other distractions away. And it is just a blank palette for God and I to dialogue together. Um, mm-hmm. So I would consider that my solitude and my silence. Um, but, you know, there are many ways. And, and in fact, there is no formula. There's no formulaic way. Every day is going to be very different. And what questions he is asking, as well as how we can receive them well. I think depending on our season of life as well. I believe that the path of life is made available to all people at every place and at every moment. I believe that few say yes to it, but the door is always being made available moment by moment back to the narrow road. And that is so hopeful to me because we live not only with the orphan's creed, but also um, with this fear that we missed it, right? That actually life was yesterday. We missed it. We're behind. We missed our calling. We missed that, that who and what we were supposed to be. But I think the questions have a way of meeting me right where I'm at and, and just calling me into the present moment, like I said with that question, when God asked me in the shower this morning, do you want to get well? It was like, it wasn't about my theology or my vocation or any anything other than this moment. God, you have my attention. I want to be curious about what you mean of where you're shining your light on what's not well. And, and also... I want to be curious about your compassion when I actually feel like you're disappointed in me. But in your question, what I'm feeling is your compassion. And so I, I know that part of my heart needs to unlearn how, who I've learned you to be. So I would say that your questions have done that for me. And what I so appreciate, you just talked beautifully about all the ways God speaks to you in questions in kind of a revelatory way, right? And But also in wisdom's long view, we have a book of questions that he's already asked, that he's asking afresh today. The scriptures are living, a breathing, alive, active, dynamic, and always available to us for this clear and present moment. And so these ancient questions have a fresh revelation and he's not done with them yet. No, we don't graduate from the questions. Mm-mm. I'm just struck by that's the opposite of what we're supposed to act like, right? We assume maturity as answers. And, and actually with that, I, I want to turn a corner because you're obviously a mom to lovely daughters and a wife, but we haven't talked about a piece of your vocation working at a school of divinity 
working with young seeming apprentices and disciples. Like, where does this overlap with that world? And now on the surface, we people might assume, well, of course, that's what you do, right? But from the stories I've heard, those two things are not necessarily all overlapped. Like, where do you see that being a woman of the questions playing out in that context? Oh, yeah. Well, first, I would say it is fiercely opposed. Um, questions, what is? questions are fiercely opposed, even with those who would perceive themselves as students and learners. There's a humility to questioning. And like you said, I mean, we, we are trying to get to a place of expertise, but we do not ever graduate from the questions. And the sooner that we can realize that and have a sense of peace in that, the better. So just as, as a teacher, um, you know, Morgan, my heart is, my heart is stirred whenever I have the opportunity to teach a student or speak or write, um, bringing more of God and his questions. Um, I desire more of this to be with him in this way and in this work. That is, that is the passion of my life. In my experience, students are always looking for something specific. And the word that we use here in the university setting and culture right now, the, the big buzzword is engagement, which to me is simply another way of speaking into the kingdom principle of presence. So students want the real me to show up for them in each moment that they can receive me. That's what they want. And, and sometimes they may not know that, but that's okay. That's okay. They want my presence and that's what I can give them that is authentic and real. And the questions come right along with that. They want the true self, the God-begotten Kara. And what gets in the way and what opposes this is the hurry we talked about in our first conversation, Dallas Willard, um, talking about how the hurry needs to be ruthlessly eliminated. Hurry gets in the way and distraction gets in the way. Morgan, you've talked before uh, about giving God our full attention and affection. And I love that. That resonates so deeply with me. When I have not given God my full attention and affection, no one else is going to get it either. Not the questions, not my students, not my daughters, no mm. one, not even myself. Specifically, and I'm, I'm transitioning now here to being a mom of two girls, um, both preteens. Our oldest daughter, Macy, is 12. And this is her, the beginning of her season of initiation. I'm learning, again, I'm a learner in this, uh, to give God my full attention and affection, to be okay with his questions myself so that I can bestow that gift upon a daughter who needs to know it is okay to stay in questions. In our house, we are seeking to cultivate that posture of curiosity that you talk about, that Romans 8, what's next, Papa, I love that. Not, you know, what is next, Papa, but that it's light, it's, it's free. What's next, Papa? With a smile. 
and the inquisitive Christ, not the book, but the, the true inquisitive Christ has shown me again and again, it's okay to put off that natural desire to appear as the expert, even as a professor. I don't have mm. to appear as an expert, but I can be welcoming to the questions of students. I can be welcoming to my own questions. I can welcome the questions of my daughters that maybe poke holes in ways in which I wish they could not see. Um, but welcoming those to the table for learning, um, welcoming process to the family table, and ultimately living a life, living a family life, living a life in my career, in my position, where questions are welcome. It takes all the pressure off. Yeah, it really does. I, I feel the pressure actually coming off because as you're saying it, because there's room, there's room to explore, there's room to pause and listen and get curious. There's room to be honest. I, I think I'm, I'm struck as you're sharing that as you have these preteens coming up and I have preteens and teens. One of my mentors with older children told me that about this time he had to shift his entire strategy of parenting to questions. His sons were done with his answers because they were right and he was wrong and it didn't matter what the topic was. And so he realized now he still had things he wanted to model, to give them access to, to mentor them in. And it all had to be shaped by the questions. And that was a that was before I even had kids that he shared that with me, Kara. But it's really um, hopeful because what he was demonstrating was he he believed, he had confidence that God, participating with God, could get his kids to where they needed to be by simply letting the questions guide them rather than the shoulds and the oughts and the answers. And it really, and it models for them also that questions work and questions matter. Mm. The best way to do that, because, you know, right now as you're speaking, I'm thinking, well, goodness, it's an awfully difficult task and somewhat bewildering to try to get all of my wisdom into a question that my preteen and teen child will hear. Um, but really that's, that's, that we can just push that to the side, that that can be shelved. And just spend time with the man, the God man who is asking the good questions. If we do that, we will learn how to ask them well of our children because our good father is asking them well of us. Chapter 12, you pose Jesus's question. What if salt loses its saltiness? Um, this was a salty chapter for me. Like, <laughs> I have to be honest, like I've never read anything on salt, okay? Like, and you you kept throwing me for some loops and it really had me thinking for quite a while. And, and it was fascinating where it took me, my initiation and my pursuing wholeheartedness over the last, I would say five years, the primary theme is receiving God as mother. That's been the, the major shift of, of recovering worthiness of love and belonging learning to find comfort and nurture compassion and robust well-being um, in that expression of God as mother in its it is foreign territory. I mean, it was brand new. I even say, I even feel a little weird still saying it. But uh, in that process, what I found, Kara, was that 
You know, we were formed literally by the hand of God in our mother's womb in salt water. Like that amniotic fluid is a warm, salty environment. And I didn't know, it was a revelation to me through your book, that our bodies actually have the same salinity as the ocean, which, which I learned has the same salinity of amniotic fluid. And there's just this amazing thing where we talk about, you know, so many of us love the ocean. And I'm so curious about God's wild design that we are formed in salt, that we were meant to be in harmony with the salt of our mother's presence, and that returning to the ocean is like a wombing experience where we are actually called to a place where we are meant to belong and Mm. immerse ourselves in a reality that's imbalanced, that's symbiotic, that has harmony. And like you say in this chapter, too much salt can kill a person slowly and too little can kill a person rather quickly. It's a balance. Um, There's there's just a brilliant play of words in this chapter, and I don't want to give away all the gold uh, because I want the the listeners to dive into your reading as Mm -hmm. I have. But my question to you is, what is Jesus after with this question of what if salt loses its saltiness? That's beautiful. That's just, it's a beautiful question. Oh, so in the first chapter, Morgan, and I believe we talked about this in the, in the last conversation, we talked about treading water in this sea of doubt and mistrust. Um, and then here in this last chapter, um, there's a very different kind of salt water experience. And, and I, I want to say that both the world and the Father offers us a place to swim. I mm. love the Helsers. I know you are big fans of their oh, music yeah. as well. And, and like their song, Endless Ocean, the call is to step ever deeper into the sea that is love, into that wombing experience. And like you said, receiving that mothering of God, but but also there is another place we can go swimming as well. And I think it's really important to recognize that. You know, I talk about the concept of the salt covenant, um, which is listed in 2 Chronicles 13 and Numbers 18. Um, This was revelation to me in light of the question Jesus asks, what if salt loses its saltiness? And I write, the covenant of salt was special known by the people as eternal and unchangeable before God. As salt was to be a permanent presence on the Hebrew table, so Yahweh wanted to express his continuous table fellowship with his chosen people. We are invited by God to make life with him taste good. We were made to do this for one another. Preaching this gospel of salt With every breath we expel, every bead of sweat, every tear, the world wrenches from our hearts. Something, however, has damaged our salt. Instead of bringing out the God flavors, we find our lives dull, our faith uncompelling. We reject the intimacy, the closeness so freely offered to us. We find that we break the covenant that defines us. And in breaking, our flavor is lost. 
Jesus questions our salt's longevity because he knows what we also know, that we cannot uphold our end of salt covenant. So like the question that I cover earlier in the book, why are you sleeping? This question about salt gets after where do we go with spiritual failure? When we fall asleep on God, when we break covenant yet again, when we forget who he is and who we are, what his question, what if salt loses its saltiness? What this question reminds me is that even in all of this, he is keeping both sides of covenant on our behalf. His face will never be turned from us or soured. We are his forever delight like the infant at his breast. And in our returning to him, our salinity will be restored and maintained. Kara, I just confess in a culture that we often find ourselves, just like you said in the beginning of the book, uh, it's, it's loud. It's grown loud with people and, and things and places, just the noise that somehow in that we grow bland. We lose our saltiness, as you said. And what I so appreciate in what you're sharing today is that to recover the heart of God, to be curious about even this idea of becoming salty um, you even share in these words, you, you say that it causes us to be compelled with curiosity, that actually there's a, a resurgence of our curiosity. There's, there's a resurgence of our interest and our intrigue by God and his kingdom and the goodness that we were meant to find there. And in a world, it's, it's just this I- irony that we have much and we have many, and we we have too many options and too many things, and in that we grow bland. But it's almost like a call to fast from the world, to even fast from salt as our palate, right? We have we have these palates as Americans that are just so profoundly salty and sugary that that we just think bland foods are just awful as a culture. But as you're sharing about the kingdom. It's, it's beckoning me to be curious about like going with, without a, like a low salt diet for a couple of days and just even feel the blandness of food and be curious about what's happened to my spirit that is not unlike that food. And then when you return that salt to it, you see that that, that is what God is up to in our place in the kingdom. Mm, I love that call, Morgan. That has never occurred to me, but I think I really can't think of a better way to respond to that question. Kara, you are a woman of the questions and you love questions. And I bet you find yourself wishing that someone would ask you a question or two that don't get asked. You have the privilege of working in a university environment. And so that's unique. And you have the privilege of having young daughters. And that is a world of the questions, <laughs> right? So, so we know that. We appreciate that. But, but the soul has a tendency. It's just like the, the parable of the sower and the seeds. It, we grow cynical. We grow shallow. We, we, we get filled with weeds. We get rocky. We get hard packed where the moisture can't penetrate. And we find ourselves not even asking the questions we long to ask. I'm curious, as the author of questions, like, 
what's a question or two you wish someone would ask you? Mm -hmm. Well, I think like any woman who is absolutely smitten, I would want to be asked, tell me more about your God. I would love someone to just ask me that. And I think I would say, right away, Emmanuel, he is with me. There's almost nothing more potent than that to me. He is intimate and curious. He's kind. He's brilliant. As I'm after more of God, I find that he is in constant pursuit of more of me. The gospel that Jesus preached was one of the availability of the kingdom of God beginning right now and continuing forever. I get to be with him. I get to live with him, walk with him, become more at home in his kingdom now as he dwells with me, asking me these beautiful questions. Thank you. That's a treasure. That's a treasure. Kira, there are so many other places we could go. Oh my goodness. Um, this is such a privilege to be with um, the like-hearted. And I just want to say that you are with the like-hearted, that this tribe all around the globe, we are those that are seeking wholeheartedly after God's heart. Um, so I hope that you have the attention of lots of people and I would love to direct them to learn more. So where do they find more about the Inquisitive Christ? Pretty much wherever you can purchase a book, the Inquisitive Christ is there by the grace of God. So, you know, Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Walmart, Christian Book Distributor, pretty much the gamut. Also, um, I have an author page on Facebook. It is Kara L.T. Murphy, author. So you can visit me there and see more information about the book. And one of the things I, I want to remind our listeners of, what I so appreciate, you don't have a separate study guide, but in the back of every chapter, you take us right into a real practical exercise of how to um, apply the content, right? How to actually stay in the question and not just close the book or race to the next thing, but you use the beautiful spiritual practice of the Lectio Divina and take us through a very um, simple and yet sacred and mysterious uh, reflection prayer process. And so a lot of our listeners, they may be new to that concept of a contemplative prayer expressed in that way, but it is gold. It's very accessible. It's a, it's a very kind on-ramp and it's right there in the book. So what I find is the book not only is a great teaching that takes me deeper into the scriptures, but it really has served as a devotional book for me to really sit in it, marinate in it, and go back again and again over pieces. So there's so much gold in there. I, I hope uh, my friends will all turn and dive into the Inquisitive Christ. It's an honor to be with you. I, I just love seeing Christ in you, Kara. And as I told you before this call, when we got to dialogue offline, like I, I feel the stature of your life and you've become the kind of woman that God can delight 
in entrusting more and more of the care of his kingdom. It would be a joy for you to close up our podcast episode of just praying for our allies who are resonating with you all around the globe. Mm, Be honored. Father, Spirit, our inquisitive Christ, we adore you. We love you. We want to treasure and love your name always with every breath. We confess that we are easily frightened away from questions. But we also together want to welcome you to come in your full presence with your questions and seek out our hearts. We give you permission. We want you. Would you fill our hearts with courage to hear you and receive you? Would your spirit bless the intimate conversations that will take place as you kindly probe and inquire? Thank you that you are the kind of God that welcomes our questions. And we get to do the same in return. God, I bless our friends. And just right now, I invite you, what question do you have for me? Speak for your servant is listening. Amen.